Good evening. Thank you very much for coming. My name is Sophia Kagan. I'm the Industry Liaison Officer for the Destin Society here at the LSE. Uh, for those not familiar with the Destin Society, we're a student-run organisation of international development students here at the LSE. We organise a range of social, academic and industry events throughout the year to give students practical insight into the complex nature of uh, international development. And we're delighted to welcome two very esteemed uh, academics uh, today um, who can provide us with just that kind of practical insight into the um, very complex nature of natural resource uh, de development uh, and how it impacts on uh, governance in developing countries. Um, I'll now, in a moment, hand over to Jean-Paul Faguet, who's the Program Director of Development Management. But before I do, just a warm welcome on behalf of the Destin Society for coming. We're really pleased that you could be here. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Sophia. And thank you to, to all of the Destin Society and all the Destin students, or international development students, for, for being here this evening. I have to say I'm very impressed with the Society for getting Paul Colley to come down from Oxford and speak to this group today. This is quite an achievement. It's not an easy thing to do. He's a very busy man, so, so you should be very pleased with yourselves and very happy with this opportunity. It's my great pleasure to introduce Paul Collier to you. Paul is the director of the Center for the Study of African Economies and professor of economics and also now lately professor of public policy at the Blavatnik School of Government. He's one of the leading experts on the causes and consequences of civil wars, the effects of aid, and the problems of democracy in low-income and natural resource societies. Many of you know Paul, maybe most of you know Paul as the author of The Bottom Billion, which is assigned in a number of our courses here at the LSE. This book won in 2008 the Lionel Gelber, Arthur Ross, and Corrine Prizes, three separate prizes, a bit embarrassing. Um, and in May 2009 was a joint winner of the Estoril Global Issues Distinguished Book Prize. He has since written two other acclaimed books, Wars, Guns, and Votes, Democracy in Dangerous Places, and The Plundered Planet, How to Reconcile Prosperity with Nature, about which I think he'll be speaking tonight. Paul, lastly, has been advisor to the Strategy and Policy Department of the IMF, the Africa region of the World Bank, the British government, and additionally, writes monthly columns for The Independent, for The New York Times, uh, Financial Times, and The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. <laughs> it's a big mouthful, but he deserves a big mouthful. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Paul Collier. Am I there? Can everybody hear me? Uh, right. So, uh, well, thank you very much for coming this evening. And, uh, you know, let me do my best to say something that makes it an evening that's you know, not a waste. Um, what I'm going to talk about is something that I've come to believe is, is by far the most important issue facing the poorest countries in the world, um, and, and that is the management of the natural assets that they're now discovering. Um, this is... Um, this is huge because it's their own money and it's very big assets for very poor places. Um, so it's, a, it's a, an opportunity without precedent. Um, to give you uh, an example, uh, I'll give you one number um, which I'm trying to find something that's square. Um, Let's imagine that this table top represents the average square mile of the rich world. 
the OECD. Right? And we're going to look underneath it. And what we find underneath it is not your feet, but uh, 300,000... No, wait, let me get the figures right for a minute. Um, what we find underneath it is $125,000 worth of subsoil assets. Actually, since we're in square miles, it really is 300,000. That's right. I sometimes do it in kilometers and sometimes miles. So this is a square mile, and it's $300,000 of subsoil assets. That's the figures as of the millennium. And that table over there represents the average square mile of Africa. So under this table, the rich world, it's $300,000. And what's under that table? And to make it more interesting, at least for me, instead of me telling you, you're going to tell me. Right? And to make it manageable, I'm going to give you a choice. And it's not a complicated choice. It's that it could be Africa could have less underneath it per square mile than, than the rich world or it could have more. Right? So you can either vote yes or you can vote more. You've got to vote. Right? Um, so all those who say Africa is less than the OECD in the rich world. Why? Okay. And all those who say more. Okay. This is why you'll remember this. You're all wrong. Except for... <laughs> um, and not only are you all wrong, you're all very wrong. Um, because this is 300,000, that's 60,000. You think Africa was very resource-rich. Actually, per square mile, as of the millennium, it was very resource-poor. Yeah. Why was there less under that table than under this one? Um, I've, done, I've, I've given this... You're about par for the course. It's a running about, you know, something around 98% more. So I knew how you were going to answer... Um, um, and it doesn't matter whether it's an audience of investor professionals who are supposed to know about this stuff, or students, or whatever. They're all, you know, it all runs around 98%. And there's only one guy who memorably put his hand up and interrupted and said, but it's neither less nor more. It's obvious. It's the same. And that's actually the right answer if you think about it um, geologically. You've got two huge areas of the world. And what's underneath them is kind of locally randomized geology that happened about you know, 60 million years ago or something. And so you take, just statistically, you'd want to say the average over two huge areas is going to be the same, geologically. Right? And only one guy got it right. And I have to say... He'd already got a Nobel Prize, so, um, so, he, you know, so you'd expect him to get it right. And Now, he was right geologically, but wrong economically, because the figures I've given you were for known subsoil assets, as was the millennium, right? What he'd done was work out, never mind the known, what's actually down there, right? So what you've learned is not that Africa's got less, 
But the, as of the millennium, it had discovered a lot less. Huh? There must be at least as much as Europe. Europe's been, the rich world's been digging the stuff out for 200 years, and there's still $300,000 down there, right? So what you discovered was that Africa had only discovered probably less than a fifth of what it's got. Now, you didn't know that, but the resource extraction companies do know that. And that's why over the last decade, with the high commodity prices, nearly all the search for new discoveries has been in Africa and the other countries of the bottom billion, which were unprospected or underprospected. Much better to look where there hasn't been much prospecting than where there has been. Now, what you need to conclude from that is that Africa's much richer in natural resources than the numbers on, what, on what's coming out of Africa imply. Right? So the last decade has really been a price boom in Africa, a price boom for the commodities that it was already exporting. And the next decade is going to be a quantity boom as all these discoveries start coming on stream. So, you know, how much quantity? Well, there's an approximation multiplied by five what was coming out in the millennium. So there's price effects plus a huge quantity effect. So this is a, a massive story for the poorest countries. Vast value will be extracted from them. And that represents an opportunity for transformation. So it's the biggest opportunity these countries have ever had. And we can't be sure that this will last for that long. Some of the discoveries are for relatively, you know, the typical small oil field is what's being found, 20 years. So after 20 years, the game's up. Or you might get technological improvement, so economic obsolescence of some of this stuff. So you, you've got basically one generation of, of a lot of natural resource extraction, and after that, we don't know. So it's the biggest opportunity, but it's not a continuing opportunity. It's an opportunity for this generation. Now, what else do we know about this process? We know that although this, this is bigger than anything that's been before, the same sort of thing has happened at a smaller scale in Africa before, in poor countries before. And we know that typically, not invariably, but typically, that hasn't produced transformative development. You know? It sometimes produced the opposite. And so the challenge, here's a massive opportunity, the biggest these countries have ever had. The next decade will be decisive because the stuff will be taken out of the ground in the next decade. And so the, the key issue is will these countries repeat the history of plunder or will they learn from history? Now repeating history is the default option. History didn't just happen. There were good reasons, there were good forces that produced those outcomes. 
And so the default option is repeat. And that will be the biggest missed opportunity. This will be a tragedy of enormous proportions. And so the battlefront is let's try and learn from history in order that we don't repeat it. So that's the context. Now in learning from history, what I'm going to do is first look at the economic decisions that have to go right in order to harness undiscovered resources under the ground and turn them into sustained development. So we're going to go through the the economic decisions, and there's not just one economic decision, there is a chain. There's quite a long chain. So there's no alternative but the long march through that economic decision chain. Until you understand what economic decisions go, have to go right, you can't understand the politics of it. And then we're going to turn to the politics of getting those economic decisions right. What political, what, what, what can we say politically it would take to get those decisions right? So that's the, the structure of what we're going to talk about this evening, what I want to talk about. So we're going to start with the, the long march through the economic decision chain. And it's useful to think of it as a chain. Um, in fact, you already know the first link in the chain is broken. Because the first link in the chain of harnessing undiscovered natural resources for development is discover your natural resources. Why has Africa only discovered a fifth of the rich world? Because there hasn't been enough investment in search. Well, investment in search is, you know, that's an economic decision. Um, so let's have a little look at, at the economics of, of, of search. And this, uh, this nests within a branch of economics called the economics of information, information about geology. Um, it's investment in acquiring information about what is the, what's under there. And what we know from the economics of information is that um, market mechanisms work very badly. In, 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 in markets for information don't work very well. Simple reason that, economic, that information is, is a classic, it's a sort of public good. It's, it's just full of externalities, you know. Um, If we just leave it to the market, then we, we sort of get two phases, both of them dysfunctional. We get a long phase in which nobody actually invests in geological information. It costs money, and the best thing to do is wait for somebody else to have a look. You know, so you, the government auctions the prospecting rights, lots of little plots, you buy your prospecting right, and then you don't look. You just sit on it. You wait for somebody with an adjoining prospecting right to dig the well, sink the mine or whatever, and then if they find something, great, you dig yours. If they find nothing, you know not to bother. Right? So, 
what I'm describing is kind of Sierra Leone, actually, for many years. They, they did that. They sort of sold a load of prospecting rights, um, and companies then just sort of sat on them. Um, and then some, somebody eventually does sink a hole and discover something. And then you get to the second phase, which is equally inefficient, which is you get a scramble. You get what's called a gold rush. A gold rush is exactly that information spreading. Everybody comes in. There's too much search. So the market produces a phase where there's too little search, a phase where there's too much. The second problem with the, the economics of, of, of search. Um, we don't know what's down there. So um, suppose I'm the president of this unprospected little country. I'm so beloved of my people that actually I'm president for life. Um, <laughs> and um, so I'm going to auction the prospecting rights, you know. And here's this attractive-looking table, and you can look underneath it. And all we know, we know very little, right? But let's suppose we reckon that there's a one in ten chance that there's oil under this table, right? And if there's oil, it's a billion dollars, right? So one in ten chance of a billion dollars. And you're, you know, you're the chief executive of Global Oil, and you're Mega Oil Limited, and what have you. So. Thank you for coming to my lovely country. What are you, what am I bid? One in ten chance of a billion dollars. Any offers? Did I see a, did I hear a hundred million? <laughs> Yours, thank you. Um, and then, and then you dig the hole, right? Now there are two possible outcomes when you've dug this hole. One is, and of course you paid me a hundred million. Right? One, one is you dig the hole and, you know, actually we could lift this hole. And, is there oil under here? No. Very sorry. So, bad luck. Bad luck, you know. Um, obviously you can't have your money back and you bought the prospecting rights. And, you know, a deal's a deal. But then, then the other possibility is, by God, there is oil down there. And you're now worth a billion dollars. And how much did you pay the people of my impoverished country? A hundred million. Now, what might I say or do? Hmm? I might indeed. I might say. I might do well. I might say, you knew. There was oil down there. Right? You cheated. And if I don't say that, this shady-looking gentleman is the leader of the opposition in my country. And he used to be in jail, but the donors have made me let him out. And do, you, do you know what he is suggesting? Do you know what he's suggesting of this $100 million deal? I mean, I don't like to repeat this sort of scandalous scurrilous suggestion, but he's suggesting that actually you paid me more than a hundred million 
because they indeed both knew that there was oil down there, but there's only 100 million in the, in the budget, as it were. Right? That's why he's back in jail. It, you know, he anyway, you see the point. Either way, um, there's going to be pressure for that contract to be torn up. Right? Um, does that include... Now, this is what economists call the time consistency problem. Right? I can make this promise ex ante, but once more information is revealed, I've not got a wholly strong incentive to keep it. Right? Um, now, the time consistency problem is a problem, the, the, the punchline of the time consistency problem is it's not a problem for people like you who don't have much power. You can actually work this out in advance. Right? Knowing that I might tear up the contract if there's oil down there, does that make you inclined to pay more than 100 million or less than 100 million? Less, right? Um, does that make me more or less inclined to tear the contract up if we find oil? Suppose we only paid 50, right? So, you know, there might be no market at all. This like, might be the equivalent of what's called the market in lemons. There might just not be a market that will, cl that will clear this prospect of a one in ten chance. The problem for me, I've got too much power. Right? It'd be nice if I had legally binding courts that could hold me to account, but you know, thinking about it, for other reasons, it wouldn't be nice. My people don't want that sort of thing. You know? <laughs> so we're not going there. Um, so I've got a problem in selling these prospecting rights at low probabilities of success. So what's the conclusion from all this? Um, it's not so surprising. If, it's, if information is a public good, then the solution, part of the solution, is generate some public geological information. It's the state itself that needs to invest in public geological information and then share it. And that makes both these problems easier. It's more efficient than a private market mechanism. And it reduces the severity of the time consistency problem. If I can get the geological odds down to 1 in 2 instead of 1 in 10, if you replay the contract business of you find oil, you don't find oil, you'll find that the incentives for me to renege on the contract are much weaker. So much for step one. Find your natural resources. And the lesson from that is that we need public geological information. Yeah. Um, I'm an advisor to the World Bank, and I fed that in. And, you know, sure enough, they actually, they, you know, they, they actually listened. And so 2010, they actually announced, now we will provide aid for public geological information. Until then, they didn't. You know, donors would finance money for schools, but they wouldn't finance money for public geological information, which is much more important. So let's move to the next <coughs> link in the chain. And the next link in the chain, so we found our resources. The next link in the chain is capture the value for the government, for the society, which really means tax. 
the government doesn't tax this stuff, then it's hard to see the society benefiting because typically oil wells and mines employ very few people and the skilled labor comes from abroad. So it's either tax or nothing. Hmm? So, so we need a, a, a good tax system. And if you look at the, you know, the, the textbooks on tax 101, it'll say, well, you need a profits tax. And the problem with that is that um, there's an overarching principle which you don't get in textbook chapter 101 fiscal, which is that it's best to tax what you can observe and observe what you want to tax. And it's a problem with profits because you can't observe them. The company can observe them. There's a big asymmetry of information here. Profits are produced by company accountants. Now, you might think it's very straightforward. Profits are just revenues minus costs. It's straightforward until you talk to an accountant. Right? Um, and there's a, a whole gray area of what is a cost. You know? What is, a ta what is taxable profit? Um, this used to be very obscure, but thankfully, you know, Starbucks has suddenly made it a whole load more transparent. You know, they, they deserve a development prize, actually, because... Um, now, so Starbucks are kind of guilty of transfer pricing. Um, African governments have suffered for transfer from transfer pricing big time for decades because it's so easy for companies to shift taxable profits out of the country. I remember talking to the tax authorities in Zambia and they, they rather t disarmingly said, well, you know, they said, to be honest, there aren't many good accountants in Zambia. And guess what? They all work for the copper companies because if you get a good accountant in the tax authority the copper companies come and offer them three times as much right? what's their job in what's a tax accountant's job in the copper company is to minimize the tax bill right? which they do beautifully you know it's starbucks in africa right? you know you run these things as a charity just I mean, starbucks has been run as a charity in britain it's very kind of them you know um, and as they say, they pay all the taxes due in the Netherlands Antilles, which is that there isn't any tax due in the Netherlands Antilles because it's a tax-free zone, you know. And that's what's going on in... It, uh, so, the challenge is, is exactly that. It's to, it's to build the, um, uh, the, 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 the tax system so that you tax what you observe what what you can observe or you build the capacity to observe what you want to tax um, that's half the problem in taxation the other half is what economists politely call an agency problem um, which is that the company has an agent conducting the negotiations which is a director of the board and the government as an agent conducting the negotiations, which might be the Minister of Mines, and 
that Minister of Mines is acting on behalf of the society. He's the agent for the citizens, just as the director of the mining company is an agent for the shareholders. And the shareholders and the citizens both have an agency problem of how do they control their agent so that he acts in their interests. But the agency problem for the company is much less daunting than the agency problem for citizens. In other words, it's easy for the company to bribe the minister to do a deal which is good for the minister and bad for the country. So, at the tax level, you've got these two problems. You've got opaque deals secretly negotiated which offer tax holidays and the like, and then even when you've got tax, the accountants just move the money out. So the the bottom line of that is it's it's proved very difficult to capture these revenues for society. Now, there are ways around that. Transparency in the contracting process competition in the transacting process where at all possible I favor auctions because auctions are structured transparent competition so competition at the contracting level and then um, uh, a tax system which only taxes what you know you can observe That may mean royalties. It might be easier to observe gross revenues than profits. In which case, give up on profits, just tax gross revenues. In fiscal 101, they'll say, oh, that's distorting. And it is. But it's better to be a bit distortionary and actually than have something which can be so easily gained. So that's the second link in the chain. So we've discovered our resources thanks to generating, thanks to investing in public geology, public geological information. We've captured the revenues for society by transparent competition in allocating the, 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 the resource extraction rights and through a well-designed tax system that reflects our capabilities to observe what companies do. And then the third link in the chain is dealing properly with the local. And the nightmare is something like the Niger Delta, where a mixture of environmental neglect and local greed produces a nightmare. Now, what can we do? What's, What's the right way to deal with the local? And here the the NGOs, I think, don't actually have it right. That for an NGO, um, once you've got the concept of the local community, then NGOs kind of go weak at the knees. Local communities can do no wrong. Um, and so they've come up with this idea of um, uh, free, prior, and informed... Uh, free, prior, and informed consent. Um, which sounds great until you think what it actually amounts to. And the danger is um, that it in, if you literally, if you took it literally, which you don't have to, but if you took it literally, 
it would give the local community power of veto. And power of veto is much more than you want to give. Because if we went down the path of saying natural resources under the ground are, belong to the people living above the ground, the consequence of that is going to be gross inequality. It's bad enough that we can't distribute natural resources equally globally. It's not as if anybody put them there. They're just the luck of the draw. We didn't make them. They're there, valuable natural resources. It's bad enough that a handful of people living in Kuwait have a lot of valuable natural resources and 80, 90 million people living in Ethiopia have none. That's bad enough, but we can't do anything about that. We have to live with that. Consequence of national sovereignty and all that. But, but we don't want to turn local, highly localized communities into sovereign communities with rights over natural assets. Because if we go that route, what we know about the assets under the ground is they're very unequally distributed. And so going that route, we're going to create a few billionaires surrounded by a sea of poverty. And so it's important to stick to the principle that natural resources are owned collectively by all citizens. What does the local community, what rights does it have? Not the rights of ownership. It has the rights to full and equal participation in the benefits to all citizens on the benefits side, and that has to be credible, so there have to be benefits to citizens, and it has to be transparent. That's very hard. And then on the other side, taking the resources out of the ground inflicts costs on the locals. And so they have to have the right to full and generous compensation for those costs. And at the moment, they don't, very often. And if we look at oil spills in two gulfs, the Gulf of Mexico and the Gulf of Guinea, oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, the first thing that BP announces after that spill first thing it announces is that it's going to spend $500 million, not on a cleanup, not on compensation, $500 million just on commissioning independent studies to establish who has lost what as a result of this oil spill. $500 million just to get information on the independent information on who's lost what. Now, why does BP do that? Because it knows that, ye gods, this oil spill's happened in the American legal jurisdiction. And so the best you can possibly hope for is the truth. Right? The, default, the, the alternative to the truth is being skinned alive by American lawyers exaggerating the damage, right? 
which is what's going to happen. So, so that 500 million investment in the truth was a very good investment for BP, very sensible investment. And then we tracked to oil spills in the Gulf of Guinea. Same oil. Do companies announce $500 million to get to the truth? No. There's no incentive to get to the truth. Because there's no legal mechanism for compensation. The initial mechanisms for compensation were people got angry and turned violent. And then you compensate the people who get violent. Guess what that leads to? Eventually, people work out, wow, never mind the environmental damage, it pays to be violent. We can be violent anytime. We don't have to wait for an oil spill to be violent. We can just be violent. And so you pays for violence, you get violence, right? And that's what they got. So what was missing, now, is the remedy the American legal system transported to West Africa. No, let's spare us that. You know. So what is the remedy? It's build some practical, realistic, feasible, rapid mechanism for agreeing on compensation, for agreeing on damage and compensation. Once you've got that in place, of course, you've got an incentive then to minimize damage. So that's the third link in the chain, is deal properly with the local which doesn't mean conceding ownership does mean full participation in benefits effective mechanisms for for compensating for environmental damage that takes us to our fourth link in the decision chain so we've got our revenues in we've dealt with the local now comes the nice bit what do we do with the revenues And now, I want to bring back that phrase, natural resources belong to all citizens. And now we're going to put a time frame on it. Citizens when? And the answer, if you think about it, is citizens both now and in the future. It's not as if this generation of citizens put the natural resources there. So if this generation of citizens takes them out of the ground, it better bequeath other value to future generations. That's the ethical responsibility. You're custodians for the value of natural assets. You're not curators of the the natural assets themselves. You want to take them out of the ground. But you're custodians of of the value. And so you need to save a reasonable amount of these revenues. What's reasonable? Well, um, that's a whole complicated story of economics, which I won't go into. But um, it will imply very much higher savings rates out of revenues from depleting natural assets than revenues from sustainable tax revenues. If you're depleting an oil well and it takes 20 years, at the end of that 20 years, you better have a pile of other assets. 
Otherwise, you behaved irresponsibly. Okay. I remember talking to a, a Zambian of about my age who said, he shook his head, he said, when the copper runs out, what are our children going to say about us? Because Zambia had depleted its copper and not saved and invested. Okay. Now, in doing that, you know, kind of the, the elementary step is you better know what your resource revenues are and know what your savings rate is out of those revenues. The amazing thing is that at the moment, um, a lot of countries don't even report in the budget what their revenues are from natural resources, and none, practically, report what their savings are from those revenues. I'm an advisor to the IMF, and I'm battling at the moment with the IMF to try and persuade them that that good practice in resource-rich countries should be to produce that number. It should be the most debated number in, the, in society, among citizens. What would be a responsible behavior towards our children? And this is not a matter of responsible government versus irresponsible citizens. <coughs> if anything, it's the opposite. It's, citizens, it's, it's households that have children. It's governments that only have four-year terms. So people are often, ordinary people are often much better at thinking responsibly about the future than governments. That's why it needs to be a matter of public debate. The government has to confess to what savings rate it's actually using. So that's the, the fourth link in the chain, is, is respect for the future, the right balance between consuming now and, and saving. And then the the last link in the chain is, so we're going to save what assets should we acquire and how should we acquire them. And uh, the, the, the role model that is out there on this issue uh, is Norway. Any Norwegians? Um, Norway um, has done what well actually what Britain ought to have done but didn't Britain ran the biggest fiscal deficit in Europe whilst it was running down its oil Norway ran a big fiscal surplus saved and then um, after a while it saved abroad because it worked out that it had got so much capital invested in Norway. They built every, every island was connected with a bridge. There's not much point in building two bridges. They just run out. They got more invested capital per member of the labor force than any other country in the world. And so they'd hit the point of diminishing returns to investment in Norway. So you still want to save. You've got, you're running your oil down. But you don't want to save in Norway. And so the sensible thing for Norway is to buy, other, buy capital in other people's countries. So it buys capital in Brazil, in China, whatever. And that's very sensible. So Norway's got a sovereign wealth fund that does that. 
50 developing countries have asked Norway for advice. Sovereign wealth funds are, to the next decade, what airlines were to African governments in the 1960s. And you're all too young to remember the airlines in Africa in the 1960s. But every government felt, as a matter of national pride, we ought to have an airline. That's modernity. And, and then in the 1990s, it was we need a stock market. That's modernity. And now it's we need a sovereign wealth fund. Because that's what Norway does. They've got natural resources. We've got natural resources. And then think. Why is it a good idea for Norway? Because they've got more invested capital to a member of the labor force than any other country in the world. Does that describe Sierra Leone? No, it doesn't. They're at the opposite end of the spectrum of invested capital to a member of the labor force. They're desperately, desperately short of capital. And so their savings should be invested in the country, not in Brazil. But, but, one reason why they've got so little capital is that they've got very little capacity to invest capital well within the country. They haven't built the capacity to make good investments within the country. And so the final part of the story is, well, you better build that capacity. That's what I call investing in investing. Spending time and effort to build the capacity to invest well domestically. And that's partly a matter of build the public capacity to invest, and partly a matter to build a private capacity to invest, because public investment and private investment are complements. The government builds the roads, private sector puts the trucks on them. You know, roads without trucks are not much use, and try trucks without roads, right? They're not much use either. So, um, so these are complements. So building the capacity to invest well. And at the moment, these countries don't have that capacity, either in the public sector or the private sector. So there's the waterfront of the decision chain. Um, just let me say a word about sequence, because in all this I haven't mentioned the word Dutch disease. Right? And that's the one thing you'll know if you study the natural resource economics, is Dutch disease. You know? um, well, actually, I have discussed Dutch disease, but indirectly. If you want to avoid Dutch disease, here's the sequence you go through. First, you do investing in investing. You build the capacity for domestic investment. Once you've built that capacity, stage two is you scale up investment. You use that savings to invest. You're building capacity within the country. What does that capacity do? It increases output. Depending on where you put that capacity, it will either increase the output of tradable goods or the output of non-tradable goods. What you need to avoid Dutch disease is to increase the output of the non-tradable sector. So you need to skew your investment towards the non-tradable sector. That, incidentally, is about the last thing that governments think of doing. The first thing they think of doing is um, investing in the value chain, as they call it, for natural resources. So if we take oil out of the ground, we're going to invest in an oil refinery to refine it. 
we take copper out of the ground, we want to turn the copper, the iron, the copper ore into refined copper. You know, it's that sort of thing. And that's a, if you think about it, that's really dumb. Because, first of all, the one thing we know is this stuff's going to run out, so when it runs out, you've lost your sector. And secondly, you're gearing up your bets. It's already risky enough being dependent upon a natural resource, and then you're gearing the economy up on that natural resource. So that's a really dumb thing to do. And then the other thing that's often talked about is export diversification. A few years ago, Sarutomi Principe discovered oil, and so IMF phones me up and says, will you come on a mission to Sarutomi Principe to advise them on oil? They said, they said, we're very keen to get them to think about export diversification. Do these people have brains? I mean, this, this is a little place, a handful of people who's going to have oil coming out of its ears for years. And so it would have a massive supply of tradable goods. What it wouldn't have would be non-tradable goods. And so what Sawatomi Principe needed, like any economy with an oil discovery is expand the supply of non-tradables. And instead they were worrying about trying to develop a tourist industry or something, some other way of earning exports. There's time enough for that. First you build a generic, first you build a non-tradable sector up, then you build a generic capital that can be good for anything, and then as your oil runs out, your generic capital then becomes the platform for a replacement export industry, which might be in 20 years. So, there's the... So first you invest in investing, then you invest, skewing it towards initially towards the non-tradable sector. And then when you've done that, then you can let consumption rise. And you can let consumption rise without causing Dutch disease. Because you've increased the supply of the non-tradable goods... And so increasing the demand for them, pari-passu with supply, won't change their price. Okay, so that's the economic decision chain that has to go right in order to turn undiscovered resources under the ground to sustain prosperity. That chain of decisions doesn't just have to go right once, it has to go right repeatedly for a generation. Because that's the sort of time horizon we're talking about. And so finally we come to what is the politics that will deliver that decision chain, not just once, but again and again. You see, incidentally, why, given the complexity of that decision chain, you see why the outcome has usually been plunder. Either the few expropriating from the many or the present expropriating from the future. So what does it take to get that chain of decisions right? And I'm going to argue that, that it's not inevitable that you repeat history. 
that there are history abounds with examples of societies which have learned from history. And let me give you one. Let me give you one. Um, what's the best-run economy in Europe today of any size? And you don't need to say Britain. We'll take Britain at hand. So the, be the best-run economy in Europe of any size, what's the... Which, yeah, I mean, it's not a very hard question, Germany, right? Um, the interesting question is, why is Germany the best run economy in Europe today? I sometimes give this lecture in Germany, and by the time you get to that, you know, there's this ocean of smug... <laughs> with li little bubbles over their heads, saying, because we're German, you know. Um, <laughs> And that, that's actually the wrong answer. Um, and the right answer, the smile goes off their faces. Um, the right answer to why is Germany the best-run economy in Europe today is very simple. It's because it used to be the worst. Germany, in the first half of the 20th century, uniquely in Europe, messed up in spades. Yeah. Hyperinflation... Appalling recession, you know, total meltdown of society. By, by, 19, by the late 1940s, Germany was perceived as this is the nightmare society. This is the fragile state. What on earth do we do with it? Right? And the, the German achievement was to pull back, pull out of that and to learn from history instead of repeating it. And in doing that, Germany did three things politically. And it's the three things that I think are needed in Africa. Now, of course, Germany's problem, avoid hyperinflation, recession, all that, totally different from Africa. Africa's not about hyperinflation and recession. It's about harnessing that decision chip. But the three things that Germany did, first... Germany put in place some rules. If you want to avoid hyperinflation, recession and all that, you better have some rules about fiscal balance. So they put in rules about fiscal balance. Rules. You can see why rules are going to matter for natural resources because you're going to have to get the same decision taken right again and again. And rules provide guidance on those decisions. Rules are not enforcing, but at least rules mean the whistle is going to be blown if at time A you've taken the right decision, but then time B you take a different decision. The whistle will go off. You will alert citizens to the fact that the rule hasn't been followed. So you need rules. Rules are not enough. Let me demonstrate the fact that rules are not enough by a, a hypothetical story about a, something called the euro. Right? And the euro is a set of fiscal rules. There are only two rules in the euro. Right? And uh, there are 17 countries in it, and they've got 11 years to follow the rules. Right? So 11 years, two rules, 
17 countries. How many of the 17 countries keep those two rules for 11 years? Hmm? Zero. No, 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 no. That would be most unfair to, to one. <laughs> Which one, anybody? Not Germany. No, no, they broke them. No, no, no. Um, um, no. Uh, any, any Finns? Any Finns? You've heard of the true Finns party? This is why the Finns are so hopping mad. Right? They're the only ones who stuck to the rules. Huh? I mean, at some point, you must think, well, they're either very good or actually, a, you know, a kind of bit dim, really. I mean, um, anyway, so, um, yeah, so rules are not enough. Even, you know, I tried to think, even Germany, you know, broke the rules. Um, so rules are, rules are the guidelines, but they don't enforce themselves. Right? So what else do you need? Well, the next thing you need are institutions. Right? Institutions that actually, they're, they're teams of skilled people. You build the skills, the capacity to implement the rules. That's what institutions are about, really. Often the phrases rules and institutions are ruled are used sloppily, but think of the the, the rules as laying down guidelines for decisions and the institutions as actually the organizations which implement them. So in Germany, the key institution was, of course, the independent central bank. Right? If you want to fight inflation, that's a good idea. If for, for natural resource decisions, independent central banks are irrelevant. You know, it's, it's, it's not the right institutions. You, if you think along that decision chain, you'll see quite a few institutions that will be very helpful but they're distinctive to those decisions that have to be taken. You know, if you're going to auction your natural resource rights, you better have an institution or organization that manages an auction process and so on and so forth. Okay, so we've got rules and institutions, and even that's not enough. Even that's not enough. The euro had institutions too. The European Central Bank. They had the rules and institutions, woof, so what else do we need? Well, the third magic ingredient in Germany was that it built a critical mass of citizens who understood the rules and the institutions and why they mattered. Of course, Europe didn't do that for the euro. Very apparently, it didn't build citizen understanding across Europe as to why the rules needed to be respected. Yeah. But in Germany, after 1945, that searing experience of hyperinflation indeed persuaded citizens that they needed the rules, they needed the institutions, they'd better defend them. And that's what a critical mass of informed citizens is for. They're the real power that defends the rules and empowers the institutions. And so that's what Africa and the other poor resource, the other poor but resource-rich countries need. They need that tripod of rules, of institutions, 
and a critical mass of informed citizens. It's relatively easy to get the rules. For example, two years ago, Governor Ghanaian Parliament passed a rule 30% of oil revenues must be saved. Sensible enough rule. It's moderately easy to get the institutions. What's hard is building that critical mass of informed citizens. And so that's the battlefront. And one reason why I come and speak at events like this is who better to build a critical mass of informed citizens than building it from the bottom up amongst young people. You've got all these fabulous technologies for spreading information at the speed of light. Use them. Use them. A group of my colleagues built something called the Natural Resource Charter, which is a website and now an organization which just lays out the decision chain. And it's designed both to inform governments and to inform ordinary citizens. So if you just Google Natural Resource Charter, up it'll pop, spread it around. You don't need it, but countries which are poor and have discovered valuable natural resources, they do. One final, final point. No, yes, one final point. Um, There's a huge coordination problem within a government. The default option, even if you know all this stuff, the default option is that power resides with the first ministry that gets the money. So if it's a ministry, if it's a, it's a, if it's a natural, if it's a mineral, it's the Ministry of Mines, gets its hands on the money. If it's, if it's oil or gas, it's the Ministry of Energy, gets its hands on the money. Typically it will set up a, a national oil company, a national this company or whatever, which is a, a shell controlled by the ministry for getting the money. And then even the Ministry of Finance doesn't see it. That's what's happened in Nigeria. So that's the default option. So what's needed is some centralized authority, effectively in the presidency, which coordinates, takes responsibility for the whole decision chain. And so the final issue is where where should authority lie for all this? And it has to lie at the head of government, basically. So with that, thanks very much. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Paul. That was absolutely brilliant and very, very interesting and provocative indeed. We have time for some questions. I think we can take them maybe three at a time. Um, I believe there's a roving mic. Is that right? Maybe a couple of roving. So let's see. There's one here in the middle. Sorry, so there's a microphone coming to you. And then we'll have another one back there in the corner and one down here in the front.
Hi, thank you very much for your, um, for your presentation. Uh, my name is Ekaterina. I'm a master's student in the IAC program here at LSE. And uh, I have kind of two questions building on to your point about uh, the need to uh, kind of bridge the divide between uh, the money coming in from resources and the savings. So uh, with the G8 summit coming up this summer and the, um, the UK government being really keen on the um, extractive, how, how does it go, EITI yeah. initiative. Yeah. So basically like uh, bridging in the divide between uh, what, what the, 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 the countries earn and also what they, uh, what they, what they say they earn. Uh, and the second question uh, was, do you think the governments uh, of these kind of developing countries would be um, open to sharing this kind of information? Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Halil Deligöz, uh, Political Economy of Europe Master's Program. Uh, you mentioned uh, roles, institutions, and uh, knowledgeable uh, citizen. Uh, th but these are uh, mostly domestic factors. Uh, I mean, everybody admire good institutions, good uh, rules, uh, like European or other developed country rules, but they cannot build these because Building these uh, institutions requires some coalitions, buildings, some political support, some uh, adjustments of power relations. These are not uh, only domestic. Uh, this uh, doesn't de uh, depend on only domestic factors. For example, let's see, uh, let's look at uh, Africa. We don't see only domestic players in Africa. Mm -hmm. We see China or other countries. Uh, how about uh, external factors in mm -hmm. uh, building these institutions, these rules uh, that they serve uh, development of these countries? Thank you. One back here in the back. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Martin. I'm doing the Masters in um, Environment and Development. Um, I, um, I'm very interested in this area. I was actually going to do my um, dissertation about natural resource curse in, in Malawi. Um, but, I mean, the, the problem that I keep running into on, on the course and, and which I'm running into from some of the research is um, precisely what the gentleman over there was saying about, um, you know, these external factors. I mean, I think average corporation tax rates throughout Africa are below 3%. Hmm. So, uh, you know, when it comes to taxes and natural resources and getting corporations to pay their fair share, because hmm. let's face it, they are the ones... With the technology to do this extraction. Mm. I mean, I'd like to hear your opinion on, on how that could be uh, resolved because yeah. at the end of the day, governments don't control the technology that's used for this extraction. Yeah, yeah. Quite yeah. Do you mind if this is the... Since I've got to run and catch a train. Um, this, but it's a, it's a... Do you want to just take one round? We, we have a couple more? Or? Well, why don't you take two more questions? Yeah, there, there are two down here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> Whereabouts do you believe the, the patriarchal responsibility of developed nations begins and ends for developing nations in response to the, the three core factors you were talking about? Mm -hmm. And the gentleman with blues, sorry. Thank you very much for your interesting talk, Professor Poyer. I mean, you mentioned these three factors that were present in Germany. I would, I would maybe I would challenge the 
the replicability of these factors um, in African countries if they did not experience a, a crisis like that was um, hmm. in Germany um, yet and, and see um, because considering the fact that people in general are very naive people ignorant and not open to change post change etc. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, okay, very good. Um, let me start with that one because we'll, we'll get from domestic up to, to global. Um, um, there are, and what you say is right, that um, you know, Germany learned the hard way. Um, crisis became an asset. Um, but it was a brutal way to learn. Um, of course, quite a lot of Africa has had some pretty brutal learning. Um, not as brutal as that. But, you know, you look at Nigeria, they went through resource booms, and then they had crashes. Um, now, it, sometimes the wrong lessons were learned. But on the whole, there's quite an awareness across Africa that the history is plunder. Um, and so there's a, there is actually a, a lot of a burning sense that I detect across Africa of never again. And, and that was the sense in Germany, I think, that never again. Um, and that, that inchoate sense of never again can, I believe, in, be harnessed, uh, has to be harnessed. Um, and the other thing is, you know, just the capacity to learn from the past is, is extraordinarily improved now. And the capacity to share information and to organize, to coordinate action, vastly different. Um, uh, where does the responsibility of developed nations end and developing nations start? These are fundamentally internal domestic struggles. We cannot develop them. It's not our struggle. It's their struggle. Each society has to take responsibility for the structure of power within it and struggle to change it, I believe. The role of outsiders is a modest role. We should still play it, but we should always recognize that it's a modest role. Our role as outsiders is to do what we can to empower the brave people who are struggling for integrity and wise decisions and responsible decisions, you know, for good stewardship of this good fortune. So these are domestic struggles. And I, uh, I, I, th I think it's disempowering a message which says, there's nothing you can do about it, it's all our fault. That's not true, and it's disempowering. These are domestic struggles which can be turned into domestic triumphs. Botswana, dirt poor place 40 years ago, richest society in Africa, fastest growing economy in the world for many years because it got it right. Yeah? And it got it right through domestic decisions. Um, but now let's turn to those external actions, external responsibilities, and the external scope for, um, for doing something recognizing that it's a modest scope. It's basically internal struggle. And you're quite right that the G8 is a, is a big opportunity. Um, and I, 
it, it's, it's kind of public knowledge that um, you may have not read The Plundered Planet, but David Cameron read The Plundered Planet, um, and he's bought into this agenda. And so when it came to Britain's turn for the G8, he actually asked me, would I help shape the G8 agenda? So that's what I've been doing this last few months. And if you look at the, the next issue of Prospect magazine, um, there's an article in there from me on the G8 agenda. Um, now, um, what is the, the desirable G8 agenda? I do not determine the G8 agenda, nor does Cameron. Right? It is determined by eight governments agreeing on an agenda. Um, so the power of the presidency is the power to persuade. Right? So if the persuasion goes right, here's what, uh, what will happen. And part the, so what I pitched to the Prime Minister when I got this opportunity, which was an amazing opportunity, I said, the challenge, the, forget Glen Eagles. You can't even remember Glen Eagles. You're all too young. Glen Eagles was, G8, it was, it was the G8 under Blair, right? Ostensibly, um, the, you know, the headline, Blair Saves Africa, right? Um, which actually read, forget about Iraq. Um, and, um, um, and it was, you know, double aid to Africa and tell Africa to be good. You know? And the first thing I said to the camera is, you cannot, you know, this is not Glen Eagles 2. There's no money, so forget about telling the G8 to double A for Africa. Um, and if you start preaching about good governance in Africa, so I repeated to him what an African leader had said to me. He said, if the G8 starts to preach to us about good governance, we're going to say, Berlusconi? Right? They're sick to their back teeth with rich country preaching. Right? So I said, the, the thing you can do is put our own house in order. Put the g 8 house in order in ways that are useful for poor countries. Start with transfer pricing. Yeah? So transfer pricing... We, we, and then, miraculously, Starbucks happened, and so it became politically doable. Right? So, do the things that will make transfer pricing much harder. That's one. Second thing is, yes, the extractives. Let's get some transparency into the extractives. Let's get EITI, let's roll it, let's, let's more importantly, put teeth into the EITI through the equivalent of the Cardin-Lugar Amendment, um, which, was the, which is in the U.S. finance bill. At the moment, the, the companies that are registered on an American stock markets actually have to be transparent because of the American law. So the challenge is to scale that up across the G8. And then finally, let's tackle corruption by um, tackling the, the money laundering. How does money laundering happen? I think, you know, African, quite correctly complain when, the, when they're told about corruption, when they're lectured about corruption. They say it takes two to tango, the bribed as well as the briber. But actually, whilst right in spirit, they're wrong in detail because it takes three to tango. There's the bribed, there's the briber, and there's the facilitator. 
And the facilitators are the lawyers who set up the shell companies and the bankers who open the untraceable bank accounts in the name of the shell companies. Now, the lawyers and bankers who set up these shell companies are not in Lagos and Nairobi. They're in London and New York. And so African governments can do nothing to control them. The point at which to tackle corruption is not the civil servant who takes the bribe. The incentives for that civil servant to take the bribe at the moment are overwhelming. The points to police are the companies paying and the banks into which they go, the money goes. And that is a matter of busting the secrecy of shell companies held in tax havens. We can do that, African governments can't. So that's the, the agenda I, I kind of suggested. Um, I have to say, David Cameron, was, he gave the best summary I've yet heard of this. He said, it's proper companies, it's proper tax, and it's proper rules. Now, his challenge is to persuade seven other heads of government that that's a good agenda. Right? And we don't know whether he'll win that. Right? But that's where we are. Thanks very much.